Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe uh, that we only have three days left in January, and I will have to admit that January itself has gone by very fast. I don't know what happens uh, with time in general, especially the older we get, but I do know for a fact that the older we get, uh, the faster time goes. So we got to make the most of every day there is that we're uh, given on this uh, planet. I also found it hard to believe... um, And I was reminded of this while watching uh, the news tonight that it was uh, 35 years ago this date that the space shuttle uh, Challenger uh, sadly um, exploded. Uh, It is hard to believe that it was 35 years ago, but there was a segment on the news uh, remembering those who lost their lives on the shuttle, uh, most notably Krista McAuliffe, who was a uh, science teacher um, who taught uh, science at a secondary school up in uh, New Hampshire, and her students, whom she taught, had um, were all getting ready to watch the um, shuttle launch, and um, sadly the inevitable happened. But one of her former students was interviewed tonight, and I thought that was really nice for her to um, have that opportunity to remember not just her teacher, but also know that despite what happened 35 years ago, there are still opportunities for um, for space exploration and for um, and for just uh, space programs to uh, still expand. You know, yes, it was a tragic thing that happened years ago, but um, even as one other person said who was interviewed, that we can't let tragedies like that uh, stop us from uh, from doing more. And that's a good way of looking at it um, from a historical um, perspective. Well, here we are uh, discussing uh, Wedding of the Waters, and uh, we are now at part five, being the final part of the book on the on the Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation by Peter L. Bernstein. And um, I tell you, it's been an amazing journey uh, to discuss this um, marvelous, or let alone engineering marvel, because it truly was an engineering marvel for its time, and while the canal is not used for commercial purposes today. Thank goodness it is opened for recreational use, and not just recreational use like, you know, going on a boat ride, or, you know, just taking your own boat out there, but there are um, Erie Canal boat tours um, throughout the um, throughout the areas that the canal uh, ran on through uh, the easternmost part of New York State to the westernmost. Easternmost, I should say, folks, being Albany, westernmost, uh, terminus, rather, uh, Buffalo. So um, I, I should tell you all this, that within the last 20 years, um, or the late 90s into the start of 2000, that's when New York State went about um, restoring the Erie Canal to um, what it would have looked like in its heyday time. And um, the next time my wife and I are up in New York State, I certainly hope that we will get the chance to do an Erie Canal boat ride, regardless of where we'll be. But here we go, folks, with the final part of The Wedding of the Waters, and this final part is called After the Wedding. Well, The Wedding of the Waters was the celebration of the festivities linking the Atlantic Ocean to the inland uh, waterways, being the Hudson River, to uh, Lake Erie. Now we're going to learn about the success that the canal has been uh, having, more so since it officially opened for business in October of 1825. So our lead-off bonus question for the following um, is this. Uh, Given the Erie Canal's instant success, how many boats 
were operating on the canal in 1826 versus the previous two years of 1824 and 1825? Well, I'll give you a number. It's between uh, 5,000 and 7,500. That is the number of boats operating on the canal in 1826. Does anybody want to take a guess at what the number is? 7,000. So that's 7,000 boats operating on the canal in 1826 compared to 2,000 when, Mar when the Marquis de Lafayette toured New York between 1824 and 1825. That was part of his grand uh, American tour, uh, as I mentioned from the previous podcast. But um, what a, a huge increase in the number of boats. That's about a 5,000 uh, boat increase. Now, I should point out in 1826, given that roughly now 7,000 boats are operating on the Erie Canal, 1826 will also, um, I don't know if I'd say sad is the right word, but it will also mark a year where, for the first and only time in American history, that two um, former presidents, two former U.S. presidents, I should say, died on the same day. They weren't just former U.S. presidents. They were two very, very prominent forefathers who signed the Declaration of Independence. They were on the Committee of Five. Uh, one was, uh, well, they were both vice presidents, but how ironic that one of them served as vice president to the other who was president. The two men did have a falling out for a period of time, but thank heavens that another forefather who signed the Declaration of Independence um, was able to um, bring the two of them together in large part because he had a grand dream that he had a, that it would be up to him from the good Lord above to be able to restore these two men's friendships. Well, the man who went about restoring their friendship was Dr. Benjamin Rush. Well, it turns out that the two men who died on the 4th of July of 1826, being the former U.S. presidents and forefathers whom signed the Declaration of Independence were uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. They both died, oh, probably about maybe seven or eight hours apart from each other. Um, Thomas Jefferson lived to be 83, which was probably unheard of for his time. John Adams lived to be 90 years old, not far from uh, turning 91. Jefferson um, Many weren't even sure he would live through um, the night to see the 4th of July. And one of his last words before he died, one of his last words, I believe, was, is it the 4th? And whoever was looking after him, whether it was a family member or a servant, had said to him, yes, today is the 4th. And he made it. Well, of course, Jefferson dies on the morning of July 4th, 1826, but little did John Adams know, way up north in Massachusetts, that his dearest friend, one of his dearest of friends, died that same morning, died that day, but hours earlier. And historians know that John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. And to think that when both men died on July 4th, 1826, the United States had celebrated its 50th anniversary, half-centennial. Remember, centennial marks 100? 
But here we are in 1826, the half centennial, 50 years. Why do I point this out? Well, think about it. Both of these former presidents, including James Madison, but but he's still alive, but both of these men saw the Erie Canal be constructed from start to finish. Now, of course, while Thomas Jefferson wasn't a big fan of the Erie Canal, he himself went about um, doing an elaborate project that benefited the state of Virginia, none other than the University of Virginia. When Jefferson, right before Jefferson died, there were three things he wanted to be remembered for. The author of the Declaration of Independence, the founding father for the statutes of religious freedoms in Virginia, and the founder of the University of Virginia. After Jefferson left the presidency, he um, was uh, dedicated to um, building a university. And it took about $300,000 to build the University of Virginia. Construction began in 1817, but the university was officially declared a university in 1819. But how ironic, the same year that the Erie Canal's festivities took place and it was officially built and officially opened the whole 363 miles across from Albany to Buffalo, that same year in 1825, the University of Virginia opened its doors to the first group of students. I should point out, though, that, um, that the first group of students were not what Jefferson envisioned. Now, this, this is for a whole other uh, subject, a whole other topic, but what I find interesting is that, um, and unique is that the same year in 1825, we have the Erie Canal is finally completed from start to finish. Well, I mean, well, yes, during before 1825, a few sections had been opened for business, but the whole 363 miles were now officially open to go from Albany to Buffalo. And in that same year, you have a, a, a university that some said wasn't even doable. And Jefferson proved them wrong. I mean, Jefferson Jefferson had to had to go above and beyond for the to the Virginia General Assembly to uh, fund this project because he was such a fervent um, uh, advocate for higher education. And he knew that um, many young men in the state of Virginia were leaving to um, leaving Virginia to go elsewhere for their education. Um, the only really the only uh, top flight school he had still at the time and it still remains t- today is William and Mary. But Jefferson faced many uphill battles in the same way that the legislators and the commissioners and the surveyors did in New York State with getting an Erie Canal constructed. So, yes, 1826. Yes, we can say that the canal is already on the right success. But 1826 should also be remembered as a time where we lost two giant forefathers. Now, many people have often wondered, after Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died, were there any other signers left of the Declaration of Independence? Well, I'll throw out a bonus for you. There was one man left. And why is his name important? Well, his name is Charles Carroll. I mentioned him from the uh, series I did, Signing Their Lives Away, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Charles Carroll 
lived another six years after Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died. He was the oldest of our four of our forefathers. He lived to be 95. And believe it or not, he's significant with transportation, not with the Erie Canal, but he was actually one of the first inaugural board members to serve on the board of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which was the first official railroad that was open for rail business in the United States in 1828, three years after the Erie Canal was completed. Now, in another podcast, I will talk a little bit more about rail, railroads and how railroads, most notably like the Baltimore and Ohio, along with some other railroads, were vital in helping the Erie Canal. Um, so I think this is something good to point out now that um, transportation has now, we're now seeing what huge strides transportation has made. We don't have interstates at this time, folks. That won't be around for quite some time more, but we have taken huge steps from going from just a simple horse and buggy now to moving by canal and eventually by railroads. So I should point out here that toll revenue ran in excess of 500000 or I should say half a million, being five times the interest due on the canal's unpaid bonds. But in 1837, being 12 years after the canal was officially completed, all remaining debt on the that was that was in existence had been repaid. Twelve years seems like a long time, but I can tell you this much: there are probably some institutions of either higher learning or just institutions in general that probably spend years, say beyond ten years, uh, repaying debts. I do know that it took George Washington about ten years to get out of debt, um, which he spent during the time of 1765 to 1775 he was in he was deeply in debt because of tobacco now while yes uh, tobacco was a very lucrative cash crop in virginia unfortunately it depleted the soil after about three plantings uh, the soil was no longer um, doable and that also meant having to clear more um, land but it also meant lots of debt but of course at one time tobacco was used to pay debts but bottom line is george washington it took him 10 years to get out, to get out of debt in part because of tobacco but but the bottom line is is that even um famous people like washington himself struggled with debt but did find a way to get out of it unfortunately most of our other well-known forefather figures struggled with debt their entire life uh, most notably thomas jefferson so here's a question for you all. Uh, would the Erie Canal become one of the world's wonders? I think this is an obvious answer, but I would say it's yes. If anybody doesn't think so, then um, I'm not sure what to tell them, uh, but I would know that something's not right if somebody would say differently. Travelers from all over the United States, including those from Europe, wanted a first-hand experience of water travel where boats would move up and downhill. Now, it should be safe to point out, though, in Europe, most notably in France and England, they're the two leading um, European countries who have really um, stepped up to the plate and have uh, built uh, canals over time. I had mentioned uh, examples of um, 
of the canals from France and England from an earlier podcast. But I think it is fair to say, though, that the Europeans coming over to America, they want to see for themselves if this Erie Canal is really the equivalent to what they have, say, either in France or England. I think they'll be in for um, a good treat, if you ask my honest opinion. I'm going to uh, mention a particular uh, fellow from England. He's not um, someone that... He's not super famous, and that's not bad, but his name is mentioned in this book. We could say that he's a random average Joe person, but his name is still worth mentioning. Did an English tourist by the name of John Howison visit New York State before and after the Erie Canal's official opening? Believe it or not, he did. Now, around 1820, the canal is already into its third year of construction, he saw a landscape that had much less hustle and bustle. In other words, he saw a landscape that still had a great abundance of nature. It was uh, undisturbed wilderness. And that's what he probably hoped it would still remain, even though he knew that there was some kind of construction going on. He probably had no idea that a canal would be built 363 miles long going from Albany to Buffalo, what he probably envisioned was a canal that at best would be 15 to 20 miles, because there were canals in England and still are today where they may not be 300 miles long, but there are canals in England that connect from one city to another that are a 15 to 20 mile stretch. But Mr. Howison did come back after 1825 when the canal was officially completed. He saw a landscape that had been drastically changed to where the environment was one that was revolved around industrialization. So he, he started out seeing tranquility and calmness, untouched wilderness, to something that was... Um, in his eyes, shocking. In other words, he saw a lot of um, undisturbed wilderness gone. He saw factories, mills, shops, all set up um, up and down the canal. So I'm sure he, was, he had to have been thinking to himself, is this the new norm? How much more does man need to fill his appetite for progress? You know, of course, back then, while we must remember, while, yes, there were skeptics who didn't want uh, the Erie Canal at first to be constructed, those skeptics were the legislators. Not that there's nothing wrong with a legislator, but we didn't have any environmental organizations back then who would have uh, challenged um, the construction of a canal or let alone taken a case to court over the matter to say, hey, these are the reasons why we don't want it built for X, Y, and Z environmental reasons. Now, in 1810, I mentioned this from a previous podcast, but I'm going to um, point it out again because I think it is good to be reminded. In 1810, um, DeWitt Clinton and his fellow commissioners needed 32 days to get from Albany to Buffalo. 
32 days, folks. That's about four weeks and four days. Almost five weeks. Not quite there yet, but four weeks and four days. 32 days to get from Albany to Buffalo. But by 1825 and onward, passenger boats began making the trip from Albany to Buffalo, vice versa, in five days or less. Now that is quite a dramatic uh, turnaround in the total number of days um, that were required from years past. But now with an Erie Canal in full swing, we're talking about um, a reduction in probably about three and a half, uh, about four weeks. So thank heavens we've got something now that can get us from point A to point B faster, if, if, even if it's not overnight. But the fact that we can now get from Albany to Buffalo, vice versa, in five days or less, that is a huge, giant step for mankind. I should point out this, too, that um, flatboats, we're going to be talking here shortly about different kinds of boats that made their way up and down the Erie Canal. And I think you all will find this find all that rather very fascinating. I, I did too myself. Flatboats that held up to 50 tons of freight, being 100,000 pounds of um, cargo, took no more than six days. That is, I, I truly find that amazing compared to what a horse and a wagon or horse and buggy could accommodate. Because as we all know, um, horse going by land with horse and buggy think about it 2,000 um, pounds is the equivalent to one ton you might be lucky on a horse and buggy depending on the team of horses you have and how big the buggy is you might be lucky if you could get two or three tons at best so if you're only doing two tons that's 4,000 pounds worth of freight but on the other hand most horse and buggies would not have even been able to have accommodated a thousand pounds of freight at best. So the Erie Canal has already proven just how how uh, radically sophisticated it has become with transporting mass quantities of freight, not just from uh, the Atlantic Ocean coming into New York City, but going upwards north into markets up the Hudson River, most notably into Albany or Kanajahari, Schenectady, and on further west into Utica, Rome, and all the way to Buffalo. All that uh, mass quantity of freight, what is it doing? It's not just telling us a sign of progress. It is telling us how much the cost of moving goods via canalway is saving the not just the average person, but say it's saving companies. Um, and, and many of you all would remember the podcast I did on the uh, that talked briefly about um, the cost of going by water versus um, by uh, horse and carriage. We're looking at about um, anywhere from like a five dollar differential or higher. Now here's another bonus question right here. Given freight traffic on Erie Canal generated the greatest share of toll revenue, that is moving you know, freight from point A to point B, how can one best describe what typical boat appeared? In other words, what did the typical boat look like? Well, 
I can tell you this, that the average boat, or let alone the average freight boat alone, pulled, pulled by two horses was roughly 77 feet long with a beam of 14 feet 3 inches, which means that the, that the boat itself left 4.5 inches of clearance on each side as the boat passed through the locks. So we're not talking, folks, dinky-sized boats. We're talking about, um, we're not talking huge ocean freighters that we would see out on the uh, Pacific or Atlantic Oceans, or let alone um, lakers that my wife and I saw um, going um, across the St. Lawrence River from our trip to the Thousand Islands in New York State this past summer. But we're talking, I mean, these boats that are roughly about 77 feet long or close to 80 feet long, I mean, they're, I mean, those are what we might call uh, giant-sized boats for their time. But they are best suited for uh, canal-like, um, uh, for canal, for being on a canal. Now, I should point out that the eastern terminus of the Erie Canal is Albany. But the irony to it is that just because it's the eastern terminus of, of the Erie Canal, it doesn't automatically mean that all of the, um, what do you call it, all of the uh, large amounts of boat activity are going to be centered in Albany. It turns out that the majority of the boat activity is centered in New York City, where boats are going north and south via the Hudson River. So think about it. Well, yes, Albany is the eastern terminus, Albany, in a sense, is the good, um, it's a great um, post or strate strategical post for what's going to be going north and south. Um, okay, if you've got goods coming in from New York City and you know that they're going to be needing to go to Syracuse, you're going to send them up north to the Hudson River. They'll go to Albany and then crisscross westward until they reach Syracuse. If you've got stuff going from Buffalo that will go all the way to New York City, there you go, Albany being the eastern point, will go southward to New York City. So basically, Albany is a good north and south point, but it's also a good um, strategical point for goods that will flow westward past um, Albany. Okay, here we go about um, boats. So let's fasten our seatbelts here. You all are going to find this uh, rather rather interesting. Not just rather interesting, you will find it um, relevant. What kind of boats catered to travelers who fell under um, higher class uh, society? That is, who were, say, upper class? How about uh, packet boats? I mentioned that from the other um, podcast, but I'll talk more about it. Packet boats are the types of boats that appeared more attractive and they are the boats that transport um, these types of boats um, concentrated solely on passengers okay so it's good to know that we've got um, some diversity in boats not all boats are going to concentrate on just freight only but we do know that the majority of the boats that are generating toll revenue on the canal are the freighters but the packet boats are going to appeal to passengers how many passengers can a packet boat um, accommodate at minimum 30 at maximum 50 these boats are about 60 to 70 feet in length and they are pulled by three horses 
And if you want to talk about something that's even more fancier, how about some nice services or amenities that range from a kitchen to a bar? Well, wouldn't it be fair to say if you're going to be on a packet boat, depending on your destination, you might be st spending the night on the boat? And, you know, you would need to eat uh, breakfast, and you may need to eat midday fare. So you're going to need a kitchen. And let's say you want a nice cocktail or just something to drink, like a glass of wine or, or hard beer or cider. Well, you got to have a bar. So think of it this way. A packet boat, if you want my honest opinion, I think it's fair to say that a packet boat might be the equivalent of a mini Titanic or a mini uh, Lusitania. Think about it. Uh, the packet boats they are geared towards those who um, have the money. We're not talking $20,000, but we're, but they have a purpose. These people have good purposes to be out on the, um, on the boat. Um, now, another type of boat is what's called a line boat. These are less luxurious than packet boats. They they're roughly 80 feet long, and they serve uh, for two purposes passengers as well as for freight. They are pulled by two versus three horses, the three horses being for the packet boat. So I think it's fair to say that if you can't afford the cost of a packet boat, but you still know that you can afford to go on a boat ride, then your best bet is to be on a line boat. Now I should point out this um, about all of the boats, regardless of whether it's a packet, a line, or a, um, a boat freighter. All boats carrying passengers had to provide the following. One steward, two helmsmen who rotated with steering the boat, to two drivers whom assisted with the animal teams, a captain. So there you have it, folks. We, we're not just relying on one person to do all this work. You've got to have a team of people to make it happen. The crews on the canal boats, as well as... Uh, being the passenger and freight boaters, or the freight boats rather, they were known as canalers. Now, how do you spell that? C-A-N-A-W-L-E-R-S. The canalers were those who physically worked on the Erie Canal, and they performed a variety of different tasks. And I'll give you an example of, um, of uh, a task that a canaler would be expected to perform. During the day, as well as during the night, Men or boys, being the canalers, would either sound a horn or blow a trumpet when approaching a lock, as well as spotting a boat from the opposite direction. Now, I think it is very important to use something to, um, to ensure that, hey, yes, we're moving safely across the canal at a certain um, stop. But, I mean, you want to be moving safely the whole duration, but... What have you got to be vigilant for? You've got to be vigilant about what's coming in the opposite direction. What don't you want to have happen? You don't want canal boats colliding with one another. Um, in other words, it, it's not like driving on a road where you pat, where if you, you know, speed up, you have enough room to get over in the next lane. That's not how it works on the canals. Remember, you've got boats that that go downhill, and the lock is guiding them, and then you got boats going uphill. So basically, the boat going downhill will need to move first, and then the boat going uphill 
would proceed afterwards. If the opposite happens, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that you could um, that that something uh, inevitable could happen. So, it's very smart that you um, either sound a horn or blow a trumpet, knowing that uh, you've got oncoming traffic in the opposite direction. And think about it; they, these people probably didn't have a crow's nest either. But they obviously had um, something else that they did have were um, lights on um, on the uh, bow and the stern sides of their boats. So in other words, they had lights on opposite ends uh, that also served um, as a um, as a as beacons in in ensuring uh, safety. Because remember, folks, canal boats did move by night; they weren't confined to just daytime. Now we're going to now get into talking about um, the costs on uh, boat rides from certain points in New York State. But I should point out this one here. This is an interesting one here. What does the number 24 mean and why is it significant? Well, the number 24 represents the number of miles via canal, including a navigation of 27 locks from Albany to Schenectady. This was a very um, tough um part of the canal to navigate not the most not the most daunting but it was a challenging one considering just how many locks there were from Albany to Schenectady and it did take about 24 hours to complete this voyage and remember folks canal boats can only go about four miles an hour so it's not like we can just change our speed at any given time we want so once people got um, to their final destination most people were more inclined to go by stagecoach. So, you know, horse and buggy is still uh, reliable, but most people still prefer canal. And here's a bonus question right here. Okay, I mentioned earlier about, earlier about uh, a captain being on the packet boats, or just uh, on the boat in general. So how much did a captain commanding a packet boat earn per month? I'll give you the number. Uh, we'll give you a, a figure to um, to determine it by. Uh, the minimum being twenty, the max thirty. The answer is thirty dollars. That's roughly one dollar per day. Thirty dollars doesn't seem like a lot, but <laughs> I will say this: in the early years of the canal's existence and going onward, thirty dollars a month that was a lot of money. Uh, and earning a dollar a day was also a lot too, but we also have to remember the cost of living back in the 1820s pales in comparison to what we know in today's modern time. Of course, um, my grandfather told me um, years ago that he can remember when um, he could go to a restaurant and buy a hamburger for 10 cents, and if he wanted a cheeseburger, it was an extra 5 cents. Of course, you know, 10, 15 cents doesn't seem like a lot to us, but back in his time when he was growing up as a child that was a lot of money but there again everything is uh, relevant to its time now I should point out that drivers of the horse and mule teams received roughly seven to ten dollars a month and there again that doesn't seem like a lot of money but once again it's all relevant to its time what about the fares, or let alone the costs on a packet boat? Did they were they all at one rate, or did they vary? They varied, they, but averaged roughly out to four point four cents a mile, which did include meals. 
How many miles was it from Utica to Rochester? Utica being outside of Syracuse and Rochester being right around the Genesee uh, River Valley. 152 miles. That was roughly two days and two nights at a cost of $6.25. Round trip. Whereas a canal trip from Schenectady to Utica being 86 miles costs $3.50. So regardless of where your uh, destination was in terms of point A to point B by canal, the costs were different, but it still averaged roughly out to about 4.4 cents uh, a mile. Now packet and line boats given that the crews of the packet and line boats would change uh, mule and horse teams every 15 to 20 miles, day and night. Whereas freight boats had their own stables placed in the bows, one team of animals was working while the other team was rested and fed. Well, you know, it's easy to think that, well, if you're going 15 to 20 miles, that your horses will still be fine for the next day. Not necessarily. You know, even animals have limits as to how much, um, as to how much energy they can um, exert in a day's time. So wouldn't it be fair to say that you need to have a backup team of horses? Let's say the lead horse isn't feeling well. You've got to have a backup in place. You know, just think about it. You know, what if uh, someone um, who's on your team isn't feeling well? Don't you think it would be fair to say that you need to have a backup to fill his or her shoes if in the event the lead person isn't ready to go? Sure. So, you know, you have to expect the unexpected. But, hey, these people are smart enough to know that, okay, we've got to have a backup team in place that's rested and fed, ready to go, so that we can give the current uh, team, the current horse team that's um, already in work, um, a break. Otherwise, if we don't give that team a break... They're not going to be um, expendable, or let alone be uh, used for long term. I think I should point out, too, that weather, believe it or not, did have um, an impact on the Erie Canal, most notably wintry precipitation. And when, when it was a uh, winter season, the canal was uh, closed. It was no longer in um, business. But even before the canal reopened for business in the spring, workers were working left and right to remove all kinds of um, winter, wintry debris, most notably snow and ice. Um, think about it, you know, the canal, just like a body of river or a great lake, can freeze during this time. So... You've got to make sure that there's no uh, hidden ice or let alone ice that w would be visible enough to create a jam. You've got to remove all that debris so that uh, the boats will be able to um, navigate smoothly downhill and uphill. And, you know, you also want to make sure that there are no uh, liabilities. You also don't want to um, not just put a boat in danger, but how about, uh, how about the uh, passengers and how about the goods? Even the tow, the roads that um, service the towpaths, meaning the um, the team of mules or horses that were um, that were um, carrying the boat, that stretch had to be repaired too. 
In other words, we don't want to be cutting corners. I never thought that this would be uh, something worth mentioning, but I think it is important to note, and it's a good bonus question for you all. Was the level of education, including school attendance, higher in the Erie Canal counties versus the rest of New York State? Yes, it was. Now, um, as for Erie Canal counties, uh, there was uh, Erie County being where Buffalo is, uh, Niagara County, Orleans, uh, Wyoming, uh, Genesee, Monroe, Wayne County. You've got um, Fulton, uh, Herkimer, Oneida, Onondaga, uh, the area uh, around uh, Albany where uh, Skahari Creek is. Uh, but you've got a, a slew of counties that are um, even Seneca County, uh, Yates County, uh, part of Tompkins. You've got um, that whole area that is greatly benefited um, from the Erie Canal. It's all along that stretch. And why would I say that people in this area are um, getting, uh, what do you call it, a better quality of education? There are some unique reasons. How about this? The canal counties have more to offer, in part because of the benefits to what the canal itself has provided. The canal has provided a multitude of jobs for people in this area. And because the, the canal has provided jobs, what do you think it would give, um, a, most notably, a young person, or let alone even a middle-aged person, but how about a young person? How about the opportunity to go to college? Yeah, maybe to study to become an engineer or study um, to become a, a business person. So the bottom line is, is that when you have a canal right in your own backyard and you've got goods coming in all different directions, east and west, you've got people who want to um, go all the way to Buffalo and then make their way into what we now know as Cleveland, Ohio, and a little bit further westward into Indiana. They are um, establishing new settlements. They are establishing a new uh, life. So we're not just talking goods, we're talking immigrants. Immigrants who can bring new ideas to America. But in large part because they have an inland way of getting them to their destination, being the Erie Canal. And it just so happens that even those in New York State and along the Erie Canal um, uh, confines their opportunities of getting an education are higher compared to those in neighboring states like New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Let me ask you this uh, bonus question right here. This is another one to think about. Were there any negative repercussions to what the canal allowed for regarding family structure? Now, I was under this assumption that the Erie Canal has done nothing but wonders. It has, but sometimes we've got to be reminded that even the most significant of engineering marvels, or let alone man-made accomplishments, do bring some form of negative repercussion, big and small. Now, prior to the Erie Canal being built, New York State is very big into agriculture. It still is at this time. But the canal has um, changed a lot of things. So the answer is yes, and that there are negative repercussions to what the canal has allowed for regarding family structure. For starters, the farm 
had been the center of economic activity, being the family farm. But once the canal was completed, men instead, being the head household, head households of their families, worked in new settings that ranged from factories, mills, stores, to offices. Those who were skeptical of the canal and saw what it had done in terms of alterations, they saw they knew for the longest time that a farm had kept the entire family together as one cohesive unit. But the canal's presence opened new markets to where family members weren't always together throughout the entire day, and many family members were coming and going left and right. They were at home for part of the time, gone for the rest. They may not even be home for another night or two, given, given their job occupation status that, that involved the Erie Canal. So basically there's a lot of coming and going, and those who, are, those who view this negatively see it as a breakdown in family home structure. And I think um, I should point out this other um, question to you all, and it is a bonus question, but um, this, is, uh, this is an important one. Were there religious organizations whom expressed concerns about the clientele to working on the Sabbath, a.k.a. Sunday? Yes, there was one group who viewed those whom tended to um, horses as being rough and boisterous, meaning loud, obnoxious, based upon their appearance as well as attire, rough-looking. Then you had another group, being the American Seaman's Friend Society, which took stands on temperance, being alcohol abstainment, to challenging Erie Canal's Sunday operational practices, which remained in place throughout the 1840s. These religious organizations uh, emerged after the Erie Canal's opening. It represented a second great awakening, being one that sought to reform church attendance in urban areas given that Erie Canal's presence had shifted from agricultural to industrial settings. The awakening itself was meant to restore some form of normalcy similar to life in pre-canal times. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the farm, or I should say the family farm, did represent a family, a solid form of family structure where there was normalcy. The family farm did represent a true foundation of economic activity. And the family farm also kept everyone together. While, yes, you may have still needed to venture into, into the city, it may not have been a daily thing. If you went to the city, it was obviously for a very good, compelling reason. So these religious organizations are trying to um, modify things to what they may have been before in the past, but they also want to keep people in line. They don't want to see people um, lose their identity. In other words, not just a work status identity. They don't want to see them go from being um, pillars in their community to people who sadly could become trash if they did not uh, watch their actions carefully. I should point out real quick that um, even in colonial day times that um, sailors were frowned upon by the tavern keepers. How so? Well, it was one thing to give credit to someone, but you didn't want to give credit to a sailor. 
How so? Well, think about it, folks. Sailors travel by water left and right. And if a sailor left before he paid a tavern keeper back, the tavern keeper uh, never would have gotten his credit back. And sailors also, if they didn't pay a tavern keeper on time, they would hold up their voyage, the rest of the crew's voyage, from um, leaving dock. So it's one thing to lend someone money, but how can you be so sure that you would ever get it back? So to sum it up in a nutshell, most taverns had a credit limit on what they would lend you. In some instances, it may have been five pounds or let alone ten pounds. Anything over ten pounds, in many instances, a tavern keeper knew he or she could never get back in their lifetime. But as for, um, you know, personal appearances, it was a big deal. You know, it's one thing to um, represent something, but if you are... It's not right to judge, but if you don't represent yourself properly, then yes, those or others around you would view you not just so much as an outsider, but one who um, did not come with uh, proper class. So the Erie Canal has really um, taken off, which is amazing. And while, yes, there are those who, um, who are skeptical about what it has done in terms of family structure from agricultural to industrial, the bottom line is it has um, set the tone. It has set the bar. It has proven that it is a natural wonder, or not just a natural wonder, but an engineering marvel that not only can transport goods 363 miles from Albany to Buffalo and vice versa, but to, get, but to also transport immigrants who were looking to start a new life in the new world. This canal has proven itself well. Our next podcast, we're going to be talking more about the canal's life in the years after, most notably going into the Civil War and into the end of the 19th century, because the canal still does have some life into the early 20th century, but eventually it will be replaced. And I should also point out, too, that in in a few years after the Erie Canal was completed, as I mentioned earlier, with the railroads, Railroads will eventually um, exceed or let alone supersede canals. But for right now, canals are still at the top of the uh, transportation chain. And I look forward to sharing more with you all when I'm back on the air again next time. Uh, Take care, and if I don't talk to you all um, again over the weekend, I hope all of you have a good weekend as well. Stay safe.